on a brisk November morning in 2017, three electrical crews assembled outside of a neighborhood just outside of Columbus, Ohio. When one employee received 7,600 volts resulting in second and third degree burns, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration conducted an investigation. OSHA issued a citation concluding that the supervisors it alleged knew or should have known about a failure to test, tag, and ground an energized transformer. And because the employees in question were supervisors, OSHA asserted that their knowledge was imputed to the company, their employer. The case is New River Electric Corporation. And today we are going to try to understand how the U.S. Court of Appeals handles the question of a supervisor's knowledge of a violation. In this, the March 16, 2022 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman right here in Washington, D.C. I represent employers in the field of occupational safety and health law. And I'm fortunate because I'm joined today by my friend and colleague here at Keller and Heckman's OSHA Law Practice Group, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you for joining us today on the OSHA 3030. Pleasure to be here as always, Manish. Well, as many of you know, the OSHA 3030 is a program where we discuss recent developments in OSHA law in about 30 minutes. And we've been coming together as a group every 30 days for more than the past eight years. This is episode 104. Uh, all of our prior episodes can be found on our website in case you're interested. Many of them are very relevant to this day. And they can be found at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. So check them out. Uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, get into it? We've got a great topic today, Taylor. We certainly do, Manish. So first, we'll review the facts of the case that is the subject of today's program. Uh, for those frequent listeners of the program, this case, New River Electrical Corporation versus the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, was the topic of the December 2020 uh, OSHA 3030. And at that time, the case had just been decided by an administrative law judge. Since we last met about this case, uh, the matter has been appealed and decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. So today, we will discuss that recent ruling. Uh, second, we will discuss the concept of constructive knowledge, which OSHA attempts to use in its prima facie case against New River. Third, we'll review the elements of the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, uh, which was asserted by New River in this case. Next, we'll talk about who has the burden of proof with respect to the company's knowledge of a violative condition under the Fourth Circuit's ruling. And finally, as always, we'll wrap it up with practical takeaway action items for you to bring back to your workplace. Finally, remember, this is a recorded uh, program so that we can broadcast it, rebroadcast it or republish it as a podcast and as a video as well, which is housed on our website, khlaw.com and also on YouTube. So... After we're done today, we will go into a, another session. We'll turn off the recordings and go into a session called Off the Record, just for the participants of our live webinar today. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, this is the case of New River Electric Corp. Eric Marsh was a, is a groundsman for the New River Electrical Corporation. 
which is headquartered in a small town just outside of Roanoke, Virginia. And on November 6th in 2017, Mr. Marsh went to work with his crew in Madison Mills, a neighborhood just outside of Columbus, Ohio. New River was completing the final stages of an undergrounding project. This was the replacement of overhead power lines with underground power lines. As the day started, the supervisors from the three crews assigned to this project met and conferred. They discussed the safety plan for the day's work. Part of that plan was a process for de-energizing the line before any work began. Mr. Marsh was part of the riser crew, uh, an above ground crew. The riser crew's work was to wreck out or dismantle two riser poles and build two new riser poles, uh, one on the south side of the project and one on the north side of the project. Uh, this work required a power outage from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the subdivision. And it was a normal day for Eric working on the transformer at the north riser until he picked up an electrical line that was still energized. He was shocked with 7,650 volts of electricity, causing second and third degree burns on his body and various other injuries. The transformer and connecting cable were not tagged. So what Eric Marsh could not have known was that no one had tested or grounded the transformer that connected the cable that shocked him. Two New River foremen, Zach Howard and Mark Bale, shortly learned about Eric Marsh's accident. Mr. Howard and Mr. Bale concealed breaches of New River's standard safety protocols. Specifically, after Mr. Marsh's injury and after they had learned about the injury, the two foremen, Mr. Howard and Mr. Bale, themselves went and grounded and tagged both the transformer that connected to the cable that Mr. Marsh was working on, as well as the adjacent transformer. That's right, Manish. And during the post-accident investigation, the men falsely reported to New River superintendent that the transformer had in fact been tested, tagged, and grounded prior to Mr. Marsh beginning work. Uh, the company's superintendent for that project, he suspected that Mr. Howard and Mr. Bale were not being honest and fired both men two days later. Eight days later, OSHA opened a formal investigation into the incident. Yes, and during the course of the investigation, Foreman Howard confessed to the CSHO that he and Foreman Bale had in fact manipulated key evidence at the scene of the accident. And that's how we know after the fact that they had gone back and uh, after the injury retagged and, and grounded the, the two transformers. On February 22nd, 2018, the secretary issued a citation and a notification of penalty to New River. The citation alleged violations of three separate allegations, uh, all of which it classified as serious. The first was an allegation of a failure to ground and tag the cable when de-energizing and re-energizing the system. The second allegation was a failure to open the disconnecting means of an electrical loop. Right, and Taylor, the third allegation was a failure to ground cables at a transformer when employees are preparing electrical cables for the installation of a device called potheads. That's right, and the secretary assessed a total proposed penalty of $38,802 and New River timely filed a notice of contest. So 
Taylor, any time that OSHA issues a citation, as you know, it must prove four basic elements. First, OSHA has to prove that the cited standard applies to the allegedly violative condition in the citation. Right. And the second is that OSHA must prove that the employer failed to comply with that cited standard. Right. And third, Taylor, OSHA must establish that employees had access to the allegedly violative condition. If there's no employee access, even though there may be a violative condition, that would not constitute a violation of the standard because there was no employee access to it. Exactly. And fourth, OSHA must establish that the employer knew about the allegedly violative condition. This could be actual or constructive knowledge, meaning that either the employer actually knew or through the exercise of a reasonable amount of diligence could have discovered the allegedly violative condition. Right. And Taylor, it's that last element that we're here to talk about today, because this this uh, overlaps with a defense that an employer could provide called the unpreventable employee misconduct defense. We're going to talk about that. So. So we talk about uh, when a supervisor, uh, when an employee has knowledge of a violative condition and when an employer has a knowledge of an uh, allegedly violative condition. But the problem in this case was that there was an allegation that the supervisors knew that there was an allegedly violative condition. And OSHA asserted that if the supervisor knows that there's an allegedly violative condition, then that knowledge is imputed to the employer. Indeed, in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and tenth circuits, that is the statement of law. A supervisor's knowledge of an allegedly violative condition is imputed to the employer. That's right, Manish. But when the supervisor commits the alleged violation, the employer loses its eyes and ears to detect and prevent misconduct. And that, in the fourth circuit, is an exception to this rule that a supervisor's knowledge is uh, imputed to the employer. In those cases you're, you're describing where the supervisor commits the alleged violation, OSHA must show that the supervisor's misconduct was reasonably foreseeable by the employer. And that's where this case gets interesting. Exactly. So Manish, in prior cases, the Fourth Circuit noted that OSHA could prove constructive knowledge in one of three ways. Right. Taylor, first, OSHA could establish that the employer had constructive knowledge by showing that the violations were reasonably foreseeable and that they were reasonably foreseeable, OSHA could show that by showing that the employer failed to take specific risk prevention measures. Right, and the second way that this can be proven is by um, looking at prior similar violations. Uh, These can show that the employer had constructive knowledge or that the violation was reasonably foreseeable. Right, Taylor, and this isn't just prior violations or prior similar violations that resulted in an OSHA citation. Any evidence of a prior violation that the employer knew of would have made this alleged violation reasonably foreseeable to the employer. The third way that OSHA can show constructive knowledge is to show that there was a history of the employer having failed to exercise reasonable diligence in discovering violations. This is basic monitoring and supervision, or that it had a history of lax enforcement of work rules. So these three methods are the most common ways in which OSHA could show that the employer had constructive knowledge uh, of a violative condition by showing that that the incident that occurred was reasonably foreseeable. 
So Manish, once OSHA has established its case, then the employer may present proof in favor of its affirmative defense. And for the affirmative defense of unpreventable employee misconduct, uh, there are four elements. Right. And it's important to note, Taylor, that the unpreventable employee misconduct defense gets raised a lot, but it's actually rather difficult to prevail on. And one of the reasons is what you're describing here, that there are four elements that the employer has to successfully prove before it can successfully assert an employee misconduct defense. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is that this is an affirmative defense. So if an employer wants to raise this defense, the burden of proof shifts to the employer. Uh, The first element that the employer has to prove is that the employer had established work rules that were designed to prevent a violation of the kind being alleged. That's right. And the second is that the employer adequately communicated uh, those rules to its employees. So a training program is, is key in this defense. And the third element is that the employer had a demonstrable record that it took steps to discover violations of the rules, surveillance, monitoring, supervising. Right. And finally, the employer needs to show that they effectively enforce the rules when violations are detected. And it has to be more than just a slap on the wrist. Remember what we said earlier that this has to be more than just lax enforcement. Lax enforcement would be evidence against the employer. Okay. So so those are the four elements an employer has to establish if it wants to use the employer unpreventable employee misconduct defense. that's right, Manish. So the interesting thing here, you know, the interesting thing about trials is that you know, both parties present their evidence uh, to the court, and then the court decides whether the evidence supports OSHA's burden of proof or not. That's right, Taylor. When we talk about these cases, it seems to be very well organized, but we put a lot of work into that. When, when I've tried cases, the way this works uh, is that, is that the, the plaintiff has to present their case in chief, and then they have to close their case in chief. And if they haven't met their burden at the end of their case in chief, then you may file in in traditional Article III courts a motion for a directed verdict. And then you get to provide your defensive evidence. And that's the defense's case in chief. So so, uh, when an attorney for, when the attorney for New River Electrical Corp reviewed the administrative law judge's opinion, and he was keeping this allocation of burdens in mind, he spotted in the administrative law judge's decision what he thought looked like an error. In this case, New River, the administrative law judge had looked at all of the evidence presented at trial, not just OSHA's proffered evidence during its own case in chief, in concluding that there was enough evidence generally submitted at trial to come to the conclusion that New River had failed to establish an adequate work rule. That's exactly right, Manish. And at at trial, New River had argued employee misconduct on two fronts. Um, First, that the supervisor's failure uh, to communicate the expectation of utilizing proper grounding and tagging practices uh, constituted employee misconduct. And two, that the supervisor's ultimate failure to communicate the fact that the lines had not been de-energized also uh, contributed to employee misconduct. Uh, But that evidence, um, the attorney for for New River believed, uh, should not be applied towards OSHA's case in chief. In other words, it's incumbent upon the employer to demonstrate that the actions of the employee were were a departure from a well-communicated work rule. Uh, but 
but that burden only arises if OSHA has has not met its burden to show that indeed there was an inadequate safety rule, and that's the key. So then the attorney for New River decided, well, if I disagree with the allocation of burdens that the administrative law judge applied, this needs to be appealed. And indeed, he appealed it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. He had a choice. Uh, you, you can bring an appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals in the circuit in which the incident, alleged incident occurred, or in the D.C. Circuit, which is the circuit uh, of record for administrative law matters because that's where OSHA resides, or in the circuit in which the corporation's uh, headquartered. And that's, that's the circuit that they chose upon reviewing the law in all three cases, uh, circuits as to uh, supervisory misconduct or alleged supervisory misconduct. Um, in the Fourth Circuit, when you look at cases on this subject, the case law is clear going back to 1979 that the burden of proof lies with OSHA to prove all of the elements of a violation. And then and only then, if OSHA has failed to meet that burden, does the employer need to show an unpreventable employee misconduct defense. But if OSHA has failed to meet that burden, that all of the elements of uh, an alleged violation have been met, then the employer does not have a duty to show unforeseeability or good faith efforts to comply. The employer's burden uh, doesn't arise. The employee, the, the agency has failed to meet its burden. And that, that should be the end of the story. And the judge should be able to rule uh, on that basis. Right, Manish, of the three types of constructive knowledge, uh, if OSHA is trying to show constructive knowledge by showing that the employer failed to establish an adequate work rule, uh, then the agency must meet its burden of proof. It can't delegate that duty to the employer to show that its work rules were indeed adequate while establishing the unpreventable employee misconduct defense. Right, I, I think that's a great point, Taylor. That doctrine that the burden remains with OSHA in its case in chief and the case in chief must be evaluated to see whether or not OSHA has met that burden is a doctrine that is particular to the Fourth Circuit. Uh, indeed, if New River had elected to direct its appeal to the Sixth Circuit, the doctrine of law is not established there and the result may have been different. So it was a very wise choice. It was a very careful and well-calculated choice to bring this to the Fourth Circuit where they are a much more uh, methodical about evaluating evidence within the confines of each party's own burden of proof. So, so the Fourth Circuit issued an opinion and said, with respect to the question of constructive knowledge, one of the elements that the, the agency needs to show the burden of proof is on OSHA to show that the employer's safety program was inadequate and that within the case in chief that OSHA had presented, there wasn't that much evidence. The ALJ had relied on evidence supplied by New River to come to that conclusion. And we don't know whether or not it would have come to the same conclusion looking only at the evidence by, uh, supplied by, by OSHA. And so the court reversed the matter and remanded the matter for a new trial. 
That's right. And specifically, Judge, Colin, uh, Judge Cullen, uh, who issued the opinion in this case, uh, stated that by relying almost exclusively on the inadequacy of New River Safety Program, uh, an issue, again, as you mentioned, Manish, not raised by the secretary, uh, to establish constructive knowledge, the ALJ essentially relieved the secretary of his burden to prove his prima facie case. The judge went on to state that when the secretary relies on the inadequacy of a safety program to prove this element of his case in chief, the secretary must carry the burden of proof. And did not do so in this case, uh, I think, is, is the implied message from the Fourth Circuit. So, Taylor, that's New River Electrical Corp. That's the Fourth Circuit opinion. What can employers do, practically speaking? What takeaway items can they draw from this case? What are the lessons learned? Right. So the first one is that employers should conduct a job, a job hazard analysis that is site and task specific. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that is, frankly, one of the four elements of OSHA's uh, prima facie case that has to establish that there was an inadequate work rule. And the, the, a work rule starts with a job hazard analysis and a good job hazard analysis should be site and task specific. The second thing I'd say is after the hazard analysis has been conducted, work rules should be established. So there's two types of work rules, ones that are enduring and ongoing, and ones that are added on for a specific job based on a job hazard analysis. So uh, the next thing that employers should do is, um, you know, really emphasize training and then periodic retraining um, and the use of performance testing uh, within this training. Performance testing, Taylor, I think is the gold standard. Of course, written tests create a great documented record that employees comprehended their training. Performance testing may be recorded, however, by the test administrator. Uh, that the person performed the test adequately and demonstrated knowledge. Uh, and both of those types of tests together create a great record that the employee knew, understood, and the employer effectively communicated his work rules and its safety expectations. Uh, the next thing pretty clearly coming out of the New River case is that, that disciplinary measures have to be applied when there are work rule violations. Uh, this should be applied post-accident. A lot of employers are reluctant to administer discipline if the employee who broke a work rule is also the one who was injured, particularly in cases of severe injuries. A lot of employers, supervisors have the belief that they've been punished enough by the injury or illness, but, but the disciplinary rules should be applied uniformly, not only uniformly in the event of an injury or illness, but also that discipline shouldn't be uh, particularly severe simply because it did result in an incident. It should be consistent with how the rule has been applied in the past. The fifth takeaway here is that employers should use past incidents, uh, citations, near misses, injury and illnesses, uh, illness data uh, to modify uh, their current practices moving forward. A lot of employers, I think that's a great point, Taylor, you're making, and a lot of employers don't look at near misses, but they do look at actual past incidents. Two other things that I'd say, look at complaints made by subcontractors or by general contractors. Uh, some general contractors refer to those as citations, uh, but they're, they're civil contractual in nature. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that another source of data could be workers' comp data to look for opportunities to learn and modify practices. Pretty clearly, Taylor, I think we'd agree that one of the takeaway items from the New River case is the need to conduct monitoring frequently to make sure that work rules are being complied with. 
it's not enough to have a rule and then to communicate that rule through training. The, the next step is to engage in ongoing monitoring for compliance. That's right. And, and the last step is to document all discipline. Um, you know, we've talked about this many times before, you know, verbal warnings, um, you know, it's fine to give a verbal warning, uh, but it should be documented, um, should, should be put, put in, in, in the records and documented. Um, so it's a sort of evidence of the discipline um, moving forward. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I, I've often said there's no such thing as a purely verbal warning. Everything that's verbal should be recorded by the supervisor in his daily log, in his walkthrough log. In some form, it should be reflected that these warnings were given. But remember, verbal warnings should be for minor infractions or for infractions that were about to happen. The enforcement must not be lax enforcement because it is one of the methods that OSHA can use to prove constructive knowledge. So there is a, a tension between the need to give verbal warnings quickly and immediately in real time to stop non-compliant behavior and the need for discipline to be meaningful. It has to be, the disciplinary measure taken has to be reasonably calculated to stop the violative practice or habit or misconduct, et cetera. Well, Taylor, that was your uh, point and I, I'm nearly agreeing with you. I think you get the last point here. Uh, <laughs> and that's the last uh, point on, on New River Electrical Corporation. Um, we'll, we'll post this on YouTube uh, on our website as well. And we'll republish this as a podcast within the next day or so. So stay tuned. And, and remember, if you're not connected to us on LinkedIn, Taylor Johnson and I both have LinkedIn pages and you're welcome to link in on those. Our podcast can be uh, made available to you on a number of podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, and the Apple, uh, the Apple Podcast app as well. Uh, so please um, subscribe and remember once you've listened to it to rate or like the podcast so that it is more easily searchable by your colleagues. Uh, the next OSHA 3030 episode will, will come to us on April 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, stay tuned for email invitations to register for that program. And remember, when you get that invitation, please remember to send it on to at least three more individuals, either within your organization or at other organizations within your community, especially safety and health professionals and the folks in your office of general counsel who are responsible for environmental safety and health. Uh, we have sister programs here at Keller and Heckman, the TOSCA 3030, the REACH 3030. Uh, the TOSCA 3030's next episode is scheduled for March 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern. And we also have a program called the FIFRA 3030. So if your organization is responsible for compliance under those statutory schema, please make sure that you, you forward on those invitations to the right people within your organization. That is the OSHA 3030 for March 2022. I want to thank on behalf of all of us here at Keller Heckman, I want to thank you, Taylor Johnson, for joining me. I want to thank uh, members of our team for helping produce this program. And I want to thank every one of you listening on the OSHA 3030, in the OSHA 3030 community uh, for being a part of this program. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.